Revelation chapter 10. We're almost halfway through the book of Revelation. Time-wise, we're almost to the end of the tribulation, but book-wise, we're almost halfway through. So we're going to do the same thing that we've done the last couple of weeks. We're going to start by defining terms. So we're going to take phrases out of the passage. We're going to define them before we read the passage so that when we read the passage, it's going to be kind of familiar, make a little bit more sense about what's happening. So the first side of your notes is all terms that we're going to define or phrases we're going to define. And let's start with number one. It says, then I saw. So chapter 10, verse 1 starts with the phrase, then I saw. Now we've seen this phrase multiple times. We haven't stopped and talked about it, but this is probably the 10th or 11th time we've seen the phrase, then I saw. And so here's what I want you to picture. Remember in Maybe in high school, or maybe you went to one of those fancy theaters where a presentation's going on and there's three screens in front of you, and, and part of it has something that's on all three screens, and you're watching all three screens, and this is happening, and then two go blank, and you're focusing on the center screen, and then you're focusing on the right screen, then the left screen, and, and it's just going back and forth, and you know where to look because of which screen is on. And the sound enhances that and all that. But you're, you're directed to look at the picture that's happening. Well, that's kind of how Revelation has been. I don't know how John is seeing these things. Maybe there, there is some kind of divine screen up in heaven. And, and this has so far been, been all taking place in the throne room of God. And the angel says, look. And John looks and he sees something like a scene. It's, it's away from him. He's not a part of it. He's watching it. And so he watches the scene take place. The, the seals are broken. Then the trumpets are blown. And he, he hears the discussion. He hears the commands. And then he sees from afar what's happening. So the trumpet was blown, and I saw this, and I saw this. And this is what happened when I saw this. And so this has been how it's taking place. And every time it says, then I saw, or something like that, the screen changes. And your attention is directed to another place. So away from the trumpets now to something that's happening in the throne room. And then away from here into there. And so we've been experiencing this. The reason I mention it now is because this phrase in chapter 10, we're actually going to move out of the throne room. So however John's been watching what's happening, he's seen it happen, not in it, but from afar, now he's going to be a part of what's happening. So he says, then I saw, and it's as if he left the throne room where he was observing. Now he's entered into the scene. Now he's on earth watching and, and interacting. So things have changed for John, and I want us to catch that. So the phrase, then I saw, in your notes it says, John moves from a heavenly vision to an earthly vision. His location changes. We still don't. So you don't know how all this is happening or how it works. He's still having a vision. It's still under the control of God. It's, it's not happening in real time, but it's happening in front of John. And now John's going to interact with the vision so that we know what's going to happen in our future. So John will play a part personally. And if you know that going in, what we read will make more sense. Number two, there's a phrase, another mighty angel. And in fact, it's the next three words in verse one. Then I saw another mighty angel. So we've already seen mighty angels, 
And this is another mighty angel. So we asked, well, what's this referencing to? What mighty angels have we seen? And, and who is this? Well, the, the mighty angels I think we're referring to are the seven angels blowing the trumpets. So the seven trumpets are blown. We determined those were archangels. So in your notes, this is probably another archangel, like the ones blowing the trumpets. This one, we get a description, though. We haven't had any description yet, and we have no reason to think they all look the same. But this one has, we're going to read, the face the face shines like the sun, his, his legs are like fiery pillars, he's wearing a, a cloud for clothes, he has a rainbow crown. This is a, a unique description. Letting us know he has authority, rank, and prestige. So, these archangels serve God directly. They, they, they talk to God. They, they are his on-call staff, if you will. They have a unique position in heaven. And this is one of those angels. We're really not told much more about it. What we are told, we'll talk about. What's really important to understand at this point is when it says another mighty angel, this is not God. This is not Jesus Christ. This is not God the Father. This is not God the Holy Spirit. This is actually an angel, another mighty angel. And we know that from verse 6 and 7. We're going to read it in a minute. But the, the angel says, um, he, he speaks for God. He speaks for God. So God doesn't speak through himself in that third person type way. This is someone speaking for God. Calls him him and he has a delivered message. So he's delivering a message from God. We'll talk about that more. Number three, further describing this angel, he says he's standing with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And, and you all know me. You know I make a lot of typos, misspell a word here or there, and, and we just pass them by, overlook them, pretend like they don't exist. And you may think that I mistyped this, and it should say one foot in the sea. But it doesn't say that. We're going to read it. It says, one foot on the sea. And, and that's important because this, this is an angel. He's going to come down from, from heaven, and he's going to put one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. So he's, he's showing his power and that he's, he's not sinking, he's not stepping into. But think of the size of an angel it would take to put one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. The language does not communicate like you go to the ocean and have one foot on the dry sand and one foot in the wet sand. Or you have one foot that got in the tide and one foot that didn't. This is, this is much bigger than that. And the standing with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, think of gladiator days or something in that realm where people are battling. And then when the battle's over and, and one person has been victorious usually means the other person is lying on the ground and they're in a state of helplessness, right? And the person who's victorious might come up and put their foot on their chest. They take a position of victory so that anyone looking knows, I have won, I dominated, I will proceed. And then whatever happens after that doesn't matter. But that's kind of what's happening. There's, there's no victim on the ground. But this angel is taking... A, a position of dominance, a position of victory. And so this phrase, standing with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, it's asserting, and there's three words you can put in that blank. You can write all three down or choose the one you like. He's asserting dominance, 
asserting authority and asserting victory on God's behalf. So, so God has been putting all of his attributes on display. He's been, he's been putting his sovereignty on display. He's been proclaiming who he is to the, to the world. And now we've come to the end of that. And, and now God has sent his representative, his ambassador, if you will, an angel who represents him. And he said, go like an ambassador and go proclaim my victory. Go proclaim my dominance. Go make a statement saying that, that, that I have been victorious. And so that's what that body language is. And, and you see the, the enormous size of the angel. Number four, we're going to read that it says his face was like the sun. And that's actually pretty simple. It means it's shown producing light. So it, it produced light. And why I want to mention this is, is I want to reference it to these three scriptures. Revelation seven sixteen. We've already read this, but we didn't stop and talk about it. In, in this verse, it says, The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. The sun will not beat down on them. Now, that doesn't say a lot, but it gives us a clue in our context. This is, this is heaven being described, the future heaven, uh, where, where the people who are surviving the, the tribulation and, and those who are being martyred in the tribulation, describing where they're going to be. And it says, never again will there be hunger, never again will there be thirst. The sun will not beat down on them. And you go, oh, that's interesting. The sun will never beat down on them. Then we'll look at chapter 21, verse 23, where now we're at that place. Chapter one, 21, verse 23 says, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp, the lamb is its lamp. So the sun does not beat down on them because there is no sun. Now this is just one of those really interesting things that we find in Scripture, realizing that in the new heaven and the new earth, there's no sun. Are there planets? I don't know. Is there a moon? I don't know. Is there an outer atmosphere? I don't know. I do know there's no sun because it clearly says the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is its the lamb is its lamp. And then twenty two five, there will be no more night. There will not need they will not need the light or the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will not give them light. The Lord will give them light. So we take this to mean that there's no sun. How that's gonna work, I have no idea. How things are gonna grow, I have no idea what it's gonna look like, I have no idea. But sometimes we, we ask the question, what's heaven going to be like? Well, the new heaven and the new earth, the new heaven is the city of Jerusalem that's, that's on the earth, and the, the earth is recreated. It's recreated much the same as it was before man fell in, in that perfect state, but one thing very different, there'll be no sun. God himself will be the light, and the light that he produces will do everything the sun does, but it won't burn you, won't scorch you, that kind of stuff. I just thought that was interesting, so I threw that out there for you. Number five, back to our text. Number five, it says the little scroll. Now it says the little scroll, and we're going to have to ask the question, what is the little scroll? What are we talking about? Well, I'm just going to tell you in your notes, it's the same exact word for scroll as used in Revelation 5.1. And Revelation 5.1, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God, 
a scroll with writing on it both sides and sealed with seven seals. And we go on in that story and they say, who is worthy to take the scroll and open the seals? Uh, and, and Jesus shows up as a lamb who was slain. He takes the scroll. Now the seals have all been opened. Remember, all seven seals have been opened. The seventh seal includes the seven trumpets and the seventh bowls. So the entire scroll has been opened. Everyone can see everything that's included. And that is the scroll we have now. It's the exact word, and it references that scroll. Okay? If you remember, it says it's a tiny scroll, a small scroll. Why is it tiny? Why does it seem small? Because the angel holding it is so big. We're going to read that he's holding it in, open in the palm of his hand. So this scroll that was taken from God, taken by, by Jesus, normal-sized scroll, pretty large, pretty bulky, now in the hand of this angel is tiny, and John's going to take it from him. So it's the exact same scroll. Second line in your notes, it's little in comparison to the size of the angel. And then lastly, this is the scroll with the seven seals. It is the scroll with the seven seals. So when we read about this scroll, you understand that's the scroll we're talking about. It's going to make a lot of sense. Number six, the seven thunders. There's just question marks there. We're going to read about the seven thunders. They're going to say something. John's going to start to write down what they say, and God's going to go, no, don't write that down. So we don't know what the seven thunders are. We don't know what the seven thunders said. There is a little lesson to be learned there. We'll talk about that. But seven thunders, just question marks. And then number seven, the phrase, you must prophesy more, means we're not done, and it's not over. We're not done, and it's not over. So now we're going to read the passage. And we'll make some comments along the way, but that should give us enough to gain our first understanding of the passage. So, chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw, and remember, uh, I'm seeing something new, it's different. I'm actually even changing locations. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of seven thunders spoke, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever. That's God. So the angel swore by God, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. Verse 7. But in the days when the, the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servant, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once again, and I, I believe this is God's voice, Jesus' voice. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will taste as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. 
It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many things, nations, languages, and kings. So, with the help I gave you, you understood a little bit of that. And let's be honest, it's not super clear now, right? Like, what's this eating of the scroll? What's with the angel standing on the land? What's, what's going on here? So let's, let's answer some of those questions. The other side of your notes. Three things we're supposed to gain from this passage. We're supposed to read this. We're supposed to gain a few things. We're supposed to walk away with some understanding. So number one, by sending his representative angel to stand on the land and on the sea, God is demonstrating his sovereign authority over all his creation. And, and I say demonstrating in that he's already proclaimed. He's already said, I'm God over the land and the sea and the fresh water. I'm, I'm God over the stars. I'm God over all creation. You know, I'm God over humanity. I have power of, of life. He's made all these proclamations in the six trumpets that were blown. And now he's demonstrating his authority. He's, he's literally sent his representative to, to take the victory pose. So his representative comes to earth, takes the victory pose. It says he, he proclaimed a roar like a lion. A lion roars and he's exhibiting his dominance. And, and that's what's happening here. So continuing on, God is now positioned both figuratively and literally to end this dispensation. And I threw that word in there for the Bible scholars, dispensation. It means era of time. The era of time that we have been in is coming to an end. What does that mean? Well, the tribulation is almost over. There's very little time left. Three to five months left in the tribulation. So that era of time is over. The time of grace is almost over. We, we're in the time of grace where, where people can be saved at any time. Where, where God is reaching out. He's reaching out in so many ways today. The gospel is available on the radio, in books, on the internet, in churches, everywhere you go, on billboards. The gospel is out there. It's available. He's reaching out. We're in that period of grace. That period of grace is about to end at the same time the tribulation ends. So he's, he's announcing that this, there's an end coming, that things are going to change suddenly. It's the last call for repentance. Remember we talked about that last week. It says, it says even after all this, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They still did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So, so God has made his great proclamation, and mankind in general has said, no, I don't think so. No, I don't want to be a part of it. And, and so the time of evangelism is, is ending. It's the end, the last call for repentance. And it's also the last battle, the last fight is coming. It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be done soon, once and for all. So that's one thing we're supposed to realize. We're supposed to say to ourselves, man, God has given them so many chances. God has given them so many opportunities. He has spoken so loudly. He has made the gospel so prevalent. He has, has made it so easy to see who he is. He, he's done all these things. There's nothing left to do. 
except wrap it up. And that's what it's doing. He's going to wrap it up. He's going to clean it up. The end is near. We're supposed to realize that. Number two, things we're supposed to gain. The declaration of the angel, there will be no more delay. That's, that's the turning point of this entire chapter. There will be no more delay. Let's everyone know that it is now time for the final and most drastic actions to be taken. Drastic actions to be taken against God's enemies still battling against him on earth and in the spiritual realm. When the angel proclaims, there will be no more delay, he's literally saying, the end has come. The end is near. The victory post has been struck. The, it's, it's over. We're just going to clean up the mess now. And, and we're going to see We're going to see if there's a battle coming up, the Battle of Armageddon. It's not really much of a battle. It's, it's an exercise in futility if you're on humanity's side. It's just cleaning up the mess. Cleaning up the mess that's been created. So A, under that declaration, the period of evangelism is over. B, the well-earned wrath, God's well-earned wrath is about to be poured out on a well-deserving humanity. Here's the picture. Worldwide, we don't know what worldwide really is. We, we can get a message from around the world. Uh, we can communicate via the internet around the world. My son lives in Japan. We can look at each other's faces on the phone and we can talk in real time. But we don't know what worldwide means. Nothing has ever happened on this earth that the entire world experiences at the same time. Tribulation will be experienced by all of mankind all over the world at exactly the same time. And, and in that, as God has been proclaiming who he is, and man has been rejecting him, they have been earning his wrath. Think of it like this. God has spoken. God has called. God has said, I'll redeem you, I'll forgive you. And mankind has responded with a fist in the air. And said, no, I don't want it. So God has put out his most clear call ever for salvation and mankind just says, no, I don't think so. I don't want anything to do with it. Just move on. And so God responds. They have, they have earned his wrath, and it's about to come. Then see, prophecies from on old, particularly the Old Testament, some from the New, are about to be fulfilled in mass. They're about to be fulfilled in mass. Here's a couple examples. Jesus will reign on a throne in Israel. Now there's stuff going on in Israel right now. Attacks have been made, um, counterattacks have been made, all over the world, everyone wants to get their opinion known, they, they want to get on the news, they want to tell everyone what to do, there's all kinds of stuff going on over there, and this may or may not pass, but it's nothing new. There's always been things going on in Israel, it's flared up right now. But God has said that one day, Jesus will sit on a throne in Israel. So we know that Israel's not going to go away. Or if it does, like it has in the past, it'll come back. But one day, Jesus will sit on the throne. And in our text, that day is very soon. Very soon from now, in our text, very soon in the sequence of events, Jesus will sit on the throne in Israel and he will rule the world. That's coming. The entire Jewish nation will be a group of saved people. 
That's a prophecy that was made long ago. And you ask the question, how is this possible? How can, how can every Jew that's still alive be saved one day? What's going to happen? Well, if we relate a little bit, logically work our way through the passages, we realize that there will be a time when there will be no unbelievers left on the earth. At the end of the battle of Armageddon, or right around there, there will be no more unbelievers. Only believers will be on the earth. Those believers will move into the thousand-year reign of Christ. And at that moment in time, if there's only believers, then every Jew still alive will be a believer. Remember, 144,000 have been sealed, so there's at least that many. Probably a lot more. So every, every Jewish person on earth will be saved, and that prophecy will be fulfilled. And then there's a prophecy that Satan will be defeated and all his authority will be taken away. That's towards the end of the book. So prophecy is about to be fulfilled in mass. That's what the angel's saying. The angel. I, I, don't, even, I don't know what's in your mind. But in my mind, it's, it's like, like a cartoon on TV or, or a movie we see where this gigantic creature that's full of power with a booming voice steps in on the scene and now he's in control because of his size. And isn't it like Satan to, to kind of make us think about something as cartoonish that God has proclaimed will happen in the future? But picture an angel bigger than any angel you've ever seen and probably ever thought of who's able to stand with his feet on the land and on the water, take the victory pose, roar like a lion, probably heard all over the earth, and proclaim this, there will be no more delay. And say, it's going to happen now. And the people who have rejected God will say, bring it on. And God will say, it's coming. And it's going to be coming. It's going to be rapid fire. From here on out. So these things will be fulfilled. Number three, the thing we need to notice, and this is probably the most important thing. Number two is the most important thing in the sequence of events that's happening. Number three is the most important thing about God. And, and this is crucial, so don't miss this. We're talking about the little scroll that was eaten. And it said, I, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. And when I, when I had eaten it, it turned my stomach sour. I don't know if you've ever had a sour stomach. You know, where, you're, where everything in you is like that carton of milk that's been in the fridge for three weeks. Overdue three weeks. Just that nasty feeling in your stomach. You can probably think back to a time when you've experienced that. That's what we're talking about. So number three in your notes, justice has both a sweet... And a bitter, or if you want a better word, use the word the Bible used, sour. And then what goes in the blank is the word sickening element. It's sickening. Okay? There's a sickening element to justice. Okay? The scroll, A, the scroll represents all that has happened and all that will happen. You know, all, all seven seals have been opened. It, it's all visible. It's all there to be seen. And so it represents everything that has happened and everything that will happen right up to the end. And then B, we have rejoiced, we, as in you and I, have rejoiced, and every reader that's ever read this has, has rejoiced in God's displays of power, mercy, and sovereignty. We have rejoiced that God has shown himself sovereign. 
We have rejoiced that God has displayed his power. We have rejoiced that God has shown great mercy and patience and graciousness. We've rejoiced in, in everything that God has done, showing himself to the world. We've rejoiced. But we haven't celebrated and we haven't laughed at and we haven't joked at the negative things that have happened. When, when God said in seal number four that one-fourth of the world died, nobody laughed. Nobody said, oh, ha, ha, that's funny. Or, oh, wow, they got what they deserved. No one, no one cheered. Did you notice that? No one went, yeah, God, good job. That, that's not our response. Because that wasn't God's response. God was not thrilled or happy. There was no party when a fourth of the world's population was killed, or later when a third of the world's population was killed, or later when the scorpion demons were stinging people, or, or any of the other things. There was no joy in the earthquake. There was no joy in the meteors. There, there's no joy in any of this. And what we're supposed to get from this is we're supposed to look into the emotions of God. We're supposed to get a glimpse into the heart of God. We, we know the facts about God, and those facts get us a long ways, but God is opening a window here for us to look a little deeper into who he is and a little deeper into his heart. And in no passage did we read did God celebrate any of these things. There was no laughter. There was, there was no party in heaven. There was no joy among the angels. See is the truth. We have taken deep breaths at the death and destruction involved. 3.9 million people, excuse me, 3.9 billion people left on the planet when one-third of the people die. That's 1.3 billion people killed probably in about two weeks or less. We took a, we kind of sighed a little bit. Take a deep breath. What does that mean? I have no idea what that means. I can't feel that number. But we didn't say, wow, that's great. Good job, God. Get another third. We didn't celebrate any of that. We took a deep breath. And that brings us to D. This is the, this is the point. God's perspective is pleasure and fulfillment in the justice, in the salvations, and in the fulfillment of prophecies. He rejoiced in the same things we rejoiced in. His power was shown. His glory was revealed. His sovereignty was, was visible. He was heard. He was it was listened to. People responded. People were saved. He rejoiced in all of that. But it is also sickening to see the eternal death and destruction of his creation in mankind whom he so loved. When John ate the scroll, the scroll contained everything that God had done. Everything that had happened. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Everything that had happened in the tribulation was contained in the scroll. And, he, and they told John to eat the scroll. And he ate it, and it was sweet. Tasted good. It was righteous. It was correct. It was exactly what needed to happen. Exactly what needed to be said. Exactly the punishments that needed to be doled out. Exactly the calling card that needed to be given. It was exactly what it was. And we rejoiced in what God did. And we were happy that God was fulfilling prophecy and, and bringing history to a conclusion. And that so many people were getting saved. 
And it, it, it tasted good going down. We left here going, wow, God is so powerful. God is so strong. God is so in charge. God is everything. That's how we left. But now God is saying, but when it gets inside, it's sickening. It sours you. It gives you the worst upset stomach ever. Why? Because it cost the eternal lives of all those people. Over the course of history, over the eons of time that we've had, millions upon millions, billions upon billions of people have died not knowing Christ. And they are on their way to hell. And all the people living in the tribulation, billions of people again, who as a group have said, no, I don't want anything to do with God. They are going to an eternity in hell. And God says, yeah, the justice is great. The sovereignty is great. The display of power is great. The mercy is great. The grace is great. Everything is great. But the other side of the coin is a little bit sickening. So many people that I love, that I have loved, are going to go to hell. And they've chosen it. And they've proclaimed it. And they've bragged about it. And, and it's not good. He says, it makes me sick that this has to happen. But it does have to happen because of justice. God wanted John not just to know this, but he wanted John to physically identify with it. That's why John now entered into the, entered into the scene. He went to be with the angel, and he took the scroll from the angel, and he ate the scroll, and it tasted great. And then it got sour. And so now he has an experience that he can relate to to understand who God is. And we can relate to that experience. We don't have to eat the scroll. We've had a sour stomach. We've eaten things that tasted really good and then made us really sick. We, we know that feeling, and, and that's, that's how God is. This is all good. It's all good stuff. It goes down good. But there's a downside. And God says, I'm not happy about this. I, I do not gain pleasure in seeing people go to hell. And that's, that's the message we're supposed to get. Number one, we're supposed to see God taking the victory position. Sending his representative to stand and proclaim victory. And to proclaim, it's, it's all done now. There will be no more delay no more extended periods of grace. We, we need to know that. We need to know that God is not thrilled that anybody is going to hell, that anybody has rejected. And, and what do we do with that? Well, we, we bring it right, right home with us. We bring it right to today. God is everything he says he is. He's a loving God who died on the cross for our sins. He's a God that says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He will listen to your prayers. He will answer your prayers. He will give you good gifts, sometimes not what you ask for, but something better. He will guide, protect, and keep you. He will use you to produce glory for himself. He will direct your path. He'll do all the things we've always talked about, all the promises. He's doing all these things, and that's great. But if you die without forgiveness of your sins, if you die Never having had a conversation with God and saying, God, I accept your forgiveness. I, I give my life to you. You are now Lord of my life. I accept your forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving. We never come to God and have a conversation like that. Then he will, with sadness in his heart, 
give us exactly what we've asked for, and he will allow us to go to hell. Because he says, you have this much time. You have your lifetime. When your lifetime is over, there will be no more delay. You will immediately be taken to the place you need to go, Hades or paradise. And then from paradise to heaven and from Hades to hell. That's the reality. That should motivate us. If I am not a believer, I should say to myself, wow, this is serious stuff. This is pretty deep. I need to figure out where I stand with God. And if I'm going to raise my fist to God and say, I don't want anything to do with you, then I should not be surprised when he says, okay, that's how you want it, that's how it'll be. Or I should say, wow, this God who died on the cross for my sins because he loves me, he's serious. I need to get with him. I need to, I need to be on his side. I need that forgiveness he's talking about. I need to be in a relationship with him. I need him to be Lord of my life, to be in charge. I, I need to serve him. And therefore I come to him and I say, I accept your gift of forgiveness. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. On my own, I deserve hell. But with you, I can go to heaven. And then God will also grant you that request. He'll say, I've been waiting for this. Yes, I forgive you your sins. Yes, you can be in my family. Yes, I'll be Lord of your life. And yes, I will take you to heaven. Those are the only two choices. There's no middle ground. There's no sort of hot, sort of cool place. It's two choices. And I, I hope that you've considered that already. I, I know we have presented the gospel many times. And, and, and we've had this conversation almost weekly because it's in Revelation so much. And it says, there will be no more delay. Pretty soon, we're going to turn the page. We're going to be talking about something else. And the opportunities that we have in service to accept Christ as our Savior are going to be fewer and farther between. They'll still be there, but they'll be fewer and farther between, and it'll be easier for you to slip through the cracks. So I'm going to pray today. I'm going to pray one more time today, uh, a prayer of salvation. And if you've never prayed a prayer of salvation, never given your life to Christ, never asked for the forgiveness of your sins, I encourage you to do that. And I'll make it super easy. The words are not magic. My words are no better than your words. It's your heart communicating to God. And he hears, he hears it every time. So if you want to give your life to Christ, if you want your sins to be forgiven, I'll give you the words, and then you say them to God. And I'll just say it, I'll pause, you can say it to God out loud, in your head, doesn't matter, he hears it all. And then, and then when we finish, I'll close this in prayer. Father, for anyone who needs that salvation, here's the prayer. Dear Jesus, I am a sinner. I've done wrong things, that's for sure. My life is a mess, and I don't know how to fix it. I realize I cannot save myself. I need you to forgive my sins. I accept your gift of salvation. I accept your forgiveness. I commit my life to you. You are Lord, and that's the way I will serve you. Thank you for receiving me. 
and forgiving me. Help me to live like I should live. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, let someone know before you leave. For all of us then, Jesus, thank you so much for the passage today. Thank you for the message you have for us. Thank you for the understanding that you take no pleasure in, in people going to hell. And it's not even really you that sends them there. They, we all make our choices. And I thank you that you care and that it matters to you. That means a lot. I pray that it would care and matter to us as we deal with other people and as we consider our own salvation, our own futures. Father, if anyone prayed that prayer, thank you that the Holy Spirit is already in them. Thank you that you're going to be working on their heart. Help us to be there for them as they have questions and have needs. Father, help us this week to serve you well, to lift your name up on high, to be your ambassadors. Let our light shine bright. All those things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.